I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, the history of privacy is a lot more complicated than you might think. We live more privately in many ways than did people a couple centuries ago. House construction, ways that neighborhoods are designed and homes are designed, but also in terms of our very rights and our sensibilities, our sense of what should be private. Then why do some social movements, like the campaign for gay marriage, succeed, while others, like the fight for gun control, struggle? Successful movements turn their grassroots gold, whereas other movements let them fade to brown, or they really just don't invest and nurture them. And water, water, well, you know the rest. The problem isn't necessarily that there isn't enough water in Texas. It's that there isn't enough water in Texas where the population centers are. This is true elsewhere in the United States. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Rarely is someone profoundly, inconsolably disturbed by a poster, but Abigail Robertson was. She was only 16 when the poster came out. It was an advertisement for flour to use for baking, which seems like just about the most innocuous thing in the world. Well, it wasn't. The year was 1902, and what Robertson saw horrified her. She saw herself a picture she had posed for in a photography studio, which the flower manufacturer, Franklin Mills, had somehow gotten a hold of. The case over whether the company was entitled to this private picture of her ended up in court. Her suit begins a kind of whole chain of cases in state courts around the use of one's image without one's permission. Sarah Igo is an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt University, and she says today's worries about privacy aren't all that new. In fact, there were a rash of technologies in the late 1800s and early 1900s that made people feel like privacy was being stolen from them. Technologies like photography, particularly instant photography, and mass media, and if you can believe it, postcards. When postcards came on board, of course, anyone could read uh, the back of a postcard from the mail carrier to a nosy neighbor. And so there's this, you know, small, uh, but I think very interesting and telling kerfuffle uh, around the etiquette of postcard writing, that people shouldn't be spilling their secrets on these cards. The rise of telephones also seemed to many in the public like a serious violation of privacy. Telephone operators, uh, wiretappers of various sorts, party lines in um, domestic telephone communications, all of these meant that people were communicating with each other about private matters, but that a whole bunch of people could potentially at any point be listening in. And the same was true for the telegraph in terms of communications over telegraph cables. Both the government and criminals of various sorts, it was well known, could, could tap into those communications. Sarah Igo's new book is The Known Citizen, A History of Privacy in Modern America. And she argues that the story of privacy isn't linear. We didn't have a whole bunch of privacy in some previous era that we continue to lose piece by piece. What we want, what we demand, what we hope for, it keeps changing. Which brings us back to Abigail Robertson, the girl who was shocked to see herself on the flower poster. Robertson won her case in court, but when she got to the state level on appeal, she lost. Her loss enraged the public. The chief judge, Alton Parker, said there was no, quote, so-called right of privacy. Parker was pilloried, but he went on to run for president against Theodore Roosevelt. And if you've never heard of Alton Parker, 
well, you know what happened in that election. The U.S., meanwhile, kept grappling with new inventions and ideas that required, often, compromises in our privacy. Social security numbers were one of those that that I think Americans really weighed and made a trade-off about, that this number, which did allow the government to track one's earnings and uh, employment history and sometimes health history as well, that that it was worth it to have economic security. And so in the 1930s, there are certainly debates about this number, uh, the the social security number we all know and uh, maybe love. And there are lots of debates about it. But in the end, Americans are, are pretty willing to have that number in exchange for economic rights and economic security. By the 1960s and 70s, the nature of debates about privacy were changing. In some ways, people were growing more open, which we will get to. But in some ways, they wanted more autonomy. Enter a 1965 Supreme Court case, Griswold versus Connecticut. So we've been talking thus far about communications technologies and mass media and so forth. And and what's really fascinating is that in the United States, the right to privacy, a constitutional right rather than a civil liability for invasion of privacy, the constitutional right comes from this quirky birth control case in Connecticut. And that particular case in 1965 was about married people's use of contraceptives and also contraceptive counseling and um, the state law that had banned those practices is overturned by the Supreme Court. So it's quite interesting that really a wealth of different privacy debates that had been going on up until this point about wiretapping, about invasive mass media and publicity and so forth, um, get funneled through a birth control case, a bodily case or a case about what was called decisional autonomy eventually, uh, about the right to a certain kind of freedom uh, to decide on your own intimate practices. What happens in its aftermath is that the right to privacy gets invoked more often and more uh, successfully often in reproductive rights and sexual freedom cases. So in a way, a whole range of privacy issues and questions get routed through reproductive and sexual rights cases. So yeah, it's you know an accident of history in a way that that's where we get our constitutional right. And um, it's been a controversial right. And you know one might want to ask whether if it had been the right to privacy came to us from a different direction, you know, from a wiretapping case, if we might think about it differently and if we might have more durable privacy rights. Do you feel like, so obviously Roe versus Wade, a case which happened just a few years after birth control was legalized nationally, it's still hotly debated. Do you feel like that right to privacy that was established by both cases, um, that that's really still kind of like up in the air in terms of being debated? Yes. I mean, of course, uh, both contraception and abortion are, are very much in uh, play as right. political issues. Right. And I think, you know, the kind of core of that chain of cases from Griswold uh, to Roe v. Wade, which was about decisional autonomy, or that's how it evolved. I don't know that there's as much contention about that as about the practices that it's been attached to, that mm-hmm. is, sexual liberty. And a lot of legal scholars have criticized those decisions for relying on a right to privacy rather than something else, a right to liberty, for example, or a right to equal protection of women under the law. And I think there's a lot of ground for that kind of argument. 
you know, what is interesting and is getting conflated, I guess, in these decisions is whether the right to privacy is is only that, you know, or is only attached to those issues rather than something else. But of course, when we talk about privacy being about our data or about our information or about our financial records, we can't forget that there are still real privacy battles being waged over reproductive control, right, you know, and right. over, you know, whether someone has the right to do what they want to do uh, with their bodies. So that bodily piece of it has never gone away and, and won't go away. Hmm. Um, let's stay in the 1970s for a minute, which you point to as this kind of transformational decade in terms of privacy. Um, and in a very different vein from Roe v. Wade, uh, there was a TV show that you highlight in the 70s. I had never heard of it before. Um, it was called An American Family. It debuted in 1973 on PBS, and it followed a real family uh, from Santa Barbara, California, which meant it chronicled romances and tensions and divorce. Uh, here's a clip of it. This New Year's will be unlike any other that has been celebrated at 35 Wooddale Lane. For the first time, the family will not be spending it together. Pat Loud and her husband, Bill, separated four months ago after 20 years of marriage. Sarah, I go, um, why was this documentary important in 1973? An American Family, which some people listening may remember, was 12 episodes in the life of the Loud family who allowed those cameras in. Uh, That was the first shock, that they allowed PBS uh, and their cameras into their lives uh, for a solid year, recording not everything, but but much more than had been revealed in a mainstream documentary before. And people were shocked by, you know, titillated, fascinated, also shocked uh, by the documentary in certain ways, which had very high viewership that the Loud family in Santa Barbara allowed these cameras in, that they allowed their dirty laundry to be aired before millions of viewers, and that they then became instant celebrities out of it, (laughs) interviewed on talk shows, offered speaking gigs, uh, and so forth. It, It seemed like a transformation in what the very contents of what one's private life were. And so the genre, because it was popular, because it was debated widely in the press, became part of popular consciousness in the 1970s and, again, moved the line between what people thought was public and what was private. Not everybody agreed uh, that that the show was a good idea or that the loud should have gone before the cameras, but they couldn't deny that there was a kind of allure to doing it and that people wanted to watch. And look how unshocking it is to us now that a family would let cameras or an individual (laughs) would let cameras into their lives. I mean, like, from the real housewives to, you know, the real world to uh, the Kardashians. Like, this is not surprising at all, right? Yes, yes. And this was really, American Family is really the progenitor of most of those shows. And the very fact that there's a kind of history of um, shock or decreasing shock, right, right, or familiarity is part of this story, for sure. And it also speaks to this, like, underlying paradox with privacy, which is that we want it and we really Mm -hmm. want to violate other people's privacy at the same time. Yes, yes. Both of which suggest it has a certain kind of value to us, right? It has a commercial value. It has a personal value. And that it isn't it isn't gone, you know, by any means. It's where I really take issue with commentaries that say Americans don't care about it anymore. Mm-hmm. They care about it a lot, but they care about it in both ways. It's so valuable that they want to know what's going on in other people's private lives and that they want to keep other people out of theirs. 
So speaking actually to that value of privacy and kind of the allure of knowing other people's secrets, um, in the 1970s, there was a television personality named Phil Donahue who started a talk show that would go on to talk about all kinds of things. It would talk about uh, pre-sexual abuse, uh, divorce, people having money problems. And these are things that I think once upon a time people would have thought were amazing that they were discussed on TV. And that gave rise to a generation of shows in the 80s and the 90s um, talking about these kinds of things. Uh, Probably the most successful one uh, was hosted by Oprah Winfrey. Here's a little bit of that show. From the outside, it looks like she has the perfect life. She's a stay-at-home mother of six children, which in itself is a really huge job. She lives in a big house in the suburbs, drives a new car, wears expensive clothes, and she may look like a million bucks, but behind closed doors, it's an entirely different story. Everything I do looks great, and it you know looks fun from the outside, but nobody knows what you go through on what I'm going through on the inside, and it's a temporary fix because once the clothes are gone and once the money's gone, what there's nothing else. Sarah, I go. That was a woman on Oprah talking about how you know she was just sort of compulsively shopping and couldn't stop. And, and you know, people think one thing about her, but here's her private life. And it's just really mm. different from, like, the public image um, that she puts out there. I wonder if those shows changed our view of what is and is not a private thing. Yes. I mean, Oprah, Donahue, the earlier and, you know, later iterations of the talk show have to be, I think, part of our understanding of what's happened to privacy in the United States. We often hear uh, Americans don't care anymore about their privacy. They just give it away. But it's not so simple as that. There are ways in which these formats built on, uh, you know, pre-existing sort of shifts going on in American culture, whereby to be a full and authentic person, one needed to be one's real self. Right. And cast off that that outer uh, public persona as uh, as the woman was really just saying that. Right. Laying herself bare voluntarily or at least, you know, relatively voluntarily on a talk show to say, you know, here here is who I really am. So a whole industry, of course, develops around this mm-hmm. in the, the personal memoir as well as the talk show. And we see versions of that on uh, um, you know, social media in all kinds of ways today. But thinking about this in conjunction with parts of our earlier conversation... This is happening at the same time that Americans are generally much more protective of things like, say, their social security numbers, mm-hmm. right, or their financial information, or even something simple like their telephone number. So I think the shift that we're seeing is a kind of protection around pieces of information that might be aggregated to uh, harm us in some way versus um, a kind of developing openness, right? right, in revealing who we really are and not having shame about that, right? right? So right. stigmas are falling away, yet private data is becoming more valuable. Uh, so those both are different pieces of privacy, but they're moving in different directions. So fast forwarding a little bit, um, how do you think the rise of the internet has affected privacy, both kind of real privacy and then like our perception of the privacy that we have? Um, so the internet is a, a huge topic for privacy, of course. Um, and one of the things the internet did was make opting out more difficult of giving away one's information, of presuming that you intended to share and disseminate uh, your personal details unless you very carefully and deliberately opted out. And that really reversed, as Dana Boyd, uh, who's written about this really nicely, that really reversed a tradition where it was actually hard to get information. It was hard to get information out and to circulate it. It, it, it flip-flopped that. So that, that 
was a hugely important part of the internet and the way that it's intersected with privacy debates. It also, of course, gave Americans who have long, um, many, uh, long wanted an audience of some kind, right, and a kind of influence and a reach, exactly that. Gave them a platform for their blogs, for their thoughts, for, you know, sharing their photographs of their meals, <laughs> you know, giving, allowing their friends to see their m- movements. It allowed people to do what they've been doing since the days of the postcard, which is, you know, share information about themselves. And and so those those two facets, um, again, have come together in really powerful ways in the uh, ability of now many, many, many people to look into and use that information in ways that were not always intended, of course, by uh, the people who put it out there to begin with. Let me just take a step out of history here for a minute. We'll step back into it for a minute. But I think in some ways people think of like history is a story of privacy being lost, right? You know, mm-hmm. you lost some with the with uh, the telephone. People can listen into calls and the telegraph and then the Internet and, you know, and closed circuit television and cameras all over cities. And you just keep going and people know more and more about you. But in some sense, if I th- if you think back to like medieval London or something, people mm-hmm. living very close together, walls being not very thick. You can just hear what people are saying on the other side. You know, or people living in very small villages and small communities where everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's business. In some ways, like tomorrow, if I walked through Rio or Beijing or like New York City, like nobody would know who I was. I mean, mm-hmm. I can walk through anonymously and maybe privately. I mean, in some ways, I feel like you could argue that we maybe have more privacy than we had hundreds of years ago. Absolutely. I think this is what is missed often in our contemporary debates, this idea that, that privacy is something, some quantity that was there once <laughs> and is now gone and or eroding or slipping through our fingers. But no, it's true that we live privately, uh, more privately in many ways than did people a couple centuries ago in terms of uh, right house construction, ways that neighborhoods are designed and homes are designed, but also in terms of our very rights and our sensibilities. Our sense of what should be private um, has changed. And so it I think it's really a mistake to think about privacy as all moving in one direction. Um, this is what makes it hard to chart and hard to kind of place at any given point. But it's it's zigzagged. And in certain ways, even though perhaps we have less privacy in our communications today or around our personal information, say, um, its accessibility to others, we have more privacy, I think, some ways in the ways we live and the ways we think about ourselves as private uh, people who ought not to have the state or our neighbors peering in through our windows all the time. So what's your diagnosis of where we are now? Are we like a lot less private than we were 100 years ago? I don't think so. But I do think that the substance of our privacy and our ideas about privacy rights uh, have changed and changed in conjunction with all kinds of things, technological development, state developments, uh, commercial, uh, and so on, architectural even. I think if I were to describe our current moment, I think what we are experiencing are two different trajectories coming together and have created a lot of problems. Um, One of them is the ability for many different agencies to know us very well um, by matching and merging technologies. The other is this uh, impetus uh, that many citizens have had since the 1970s to disclose more of their authentic selves Mm. on different kinds of media platforms. Those are coming together in ways that are, I think, um, were unanticipated and which have meant that 
there is a ton of information out there about us. Some of it uh, kept by record keepers, some of it disclosed voluntarily by us. Um, and, and then we've got, we're in this technological and commercial moment where all of that is valuable to others. And there are many, many ways to harness it. So those two things have come together. They didn't they didn't necessarily have to come together, but they have. And I think that explains our uh, scandal-laden <laughs> moment, you know, from Equifax to Cambridge Analytica and whatever is next. Sarah Igo is the author of The Known Citizen, A History of Privacy in Modern America. She's also an associate professor of history at Vanderbilt. Sarah, thank you very much. Thanks for the conversation. I enjoyed it. On our website, we'll have more about Abigail Robertson and the flower ad that I mentioned at the beginning that changed how Americans think about privacy. That's at innovationhub.org. In the 1960s, cigarettes were ubiquitous. Parents smoked them around kids. Doctors smoked them around patients. You could barely turn on the TV without seeing someone with a cigarette in their hand. Actor Joey Bishop, who was part of the Rat Pack, was no exception. Here he is doing a spot for Newport cigarettes during his show on NBC. Hey, boss, listen to this Newport commercial I just wrote. I expect you to write jokes, not commercials. Oh, but listen to this. Newport refreshes while you smoke because only Newport combines menthol, fine tobaccos, and a hint of mint. Oh, that's beautiful. I've always said that about Newport. And cigarettes stayed popular over the next few decades. But then something happened. Cigarette prices started to rise. Health awareness campaigns started popping up all over the country. Little by little, cigarette smoking dwindled. A few decades ago, more than 50% of American men smoked. Now five in six don't. So what does it take for a social movement to face down something as big as the cigarette industry? And what does that success tell us about other movements? The tobacco control side has been so successful against the tobacco industry because they realize that the enemy here is not, you know, just Philip Morris or Salem or any of the cigarettes. It's the brands. It's this, these iconic images. It's the Marlboro Man. It's Joe Camel. That's Leslie Crutchfield, executive director of Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative. She has spent years studying why certain movements achieve their objectives, like the fight for gay marriage or the campaign to expand gun rights, and why others don't. What you learn from the struggle over tobacco, she says, is how widely you have to appeal to the public. Tobacco control activists, the Truth Initiative organizers, did a lot of psychographic really smart marketing research to really understand attitudes and opinions of Gen X and millennial, late-stage millennial and next-gen potential smokers to understand what appeals to them and then created ads with, you know, the Madison Avenue advertising agencies that were doing the same thing for Marlboro and Joe Camel coming at it from the other side. So you have to fight fire with fire. Crutchfield is the author of the new book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't, in which she tells often unknown stories behind campaigns for change that have altered American culture. So the most significant factor that seems to differentiate the winning movements from other movements Mm -hmm. is this. It's how they deal with their grassroots. Successful movements turn their grassroots gold, whereas other movements 
let them fade to brown, or they really just don't invest in nurturing them. Yeah, what does that mean to turn the grassroots gold? So let's look at guns. Okay. Let's go back to a point in time in U.S. history, 2012, the year of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting massacre. Mm -hmm. So that day in December, you had 26 elementary school students and educators killed by a violent shooter. And at that point in time, there's two numbers that stand out to me, and that's 5 million and 400,000. And by 2012, the National Rifle Association, or the NRA, had grown its membership to around 5 million. Okay. Whereas the largest gun reform group at that time was the Brady Campaign, and its membership hovered around 400,000. So for several decades, the gun reform movement was one-tenth the size of the gun rights movement if you just looked at pure quantitative membership roles. More importantly, those members were activated on the gun rights side. So they had a big, intense, sprawling network of members who cared, in this case, about gun rights ownership and access issues. They were motivated and continue to be to this day to defend the Second Amendment. And what you had on the gun control side, going back to 2012, you know, you had proposals on the Congress floor, you had filibuster, there was, you know, so much activity. And people say, if you can't have passed a federal gun reform law in the wake of that, how will you ever have an impact? Well, at that point in time, if you go back to this grassroots, the NRA had a much more visible and robust and organized grassroots base. So what happened after 2012 is Shannon Watts was incensed. She was a stay-at-home mom in Indiana with four kids. She had grown up in the Columbine era. She wasn't a survivor directly of Columbine, but from Colorado, and she was fed up. She started an organization called Moms Demand Action with a Facebook page. And by 2017, by last year when I was finishing up research for this book, after Moms Demand Action merged with Mayor Bloomberg's Mayors Against Illegal Guns to create what we now know as Every Town for Gun Safety, which was created in 2014, their membership has grown to, had grown to 4 million hmm. by the end of 2017. Now this year, in the wake of the Parkland shooting massacre, now you see Every Town's support roles growing to more than 5 million. So for the first time in the last several decades, you have a gun control movement that has an equal and opposite level of volume and intensity at the grassroots level that you do for the gun rights movement. Now, this might seem very counterintuitive to listeners because if you, you know, watch mainstream media, there's obviously a liberal media bias. You also have public opinion uh, very much in favor of tighter gun reform laws. You know, right. the latest Quinnipiac polls have respondents saying, you know, at more than 95% saying they'd like to have tighter gun laws. So the public opinion and what citizens want is not in line with where our public policies are going. And that is directly attributable to the phenomenal grassroots organizational prowess of the NRA. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Leslie Crutchfield. She's the executive director at Georgetown's Global Social Enterprise Initiative and the author of the book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. Uh, let's talk about one more social movement. And this is a movement that 
you know, has changed American culture. And it's the movement towards gay marriage. And this is one that has often been, a lot of people have remarked on, like, how quickly public opinion changed. So if you go back to 1996, which was just over 20 years ago, not that long ago when you think about decades and decades of, you know, tobacco use. And right, we think you know, the NRA is 150 years old. So just 20 years ago, we had a Democratic president, um, Bill Clinton, who signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which said marriage is between one man and, and one woman. When you think about that, wow, how things have changed in a little over 20 years, um, what is your take on how public opinion, the Democratic Party, how did they change so quickly? When you look at the strategies and tactics employed by advocates for gay marriage, certainly trying to influence and shift public opinion and behavior was part of it. But it really was a very holistic and strategically thought out campaign where there were policy changes, there was litigation strategies and all kinds of things going on. So just to take you back to another moment in time, back in 2005, some of the leaders of the various groups involved with marriage equality were at a convening in Jersey City, New Jersey. And it was a real low point for the movement. You know, a lot of times people say now, you know, with demographic changes, it, it was inevitable that we would extend this equal right. Marriage equality did not look inevitable. It looked impossible. So leaders got together and they said, you know, what can we try and accomplish? And they started to look at the country, not as this monolithic federation of 50 states, but they developed what we call a 10, 10, 10, 20 equals 50 lens. Okay. It's a tongue twister, but the idea is that you got to kind of divide up the country and look at it regionally. So they said, let's take 10 states and maybe we'll try to go for full marriage. You know, we did it in Massachusetts. We're going to try and defend it there. Let's go to New York. Let's go to some of the states that has a more progressive outlook. Mm -hmm. Then we'll take 10 states and we'll try and just go for civil unions. You know, Vermont had introduced this innovation. It's kind of separate and not quite equal, but better than what many gay couples had at the time. Mm -hmm. Then they said, other states, let's just go for relationship recognition laws so we can visit our partner if they're sick in the hospital. But the interesting thing is 20 states, the balance of the U.S. states, the strategy was just to go take discriminatory laws off the books, right? Sodomy laws, all kinds of discriminatory laws that still rested on um, state and local books. So if you could get communities across the U.S. to take kind of one incremental step forward towards greater tolerance, maybe not embracing full marriage, because that was really big leap for, for most people. And then once they started saying, what can we get done at each state and local level, then they started getting more momentum. I wonder, is what... Um the people did who were trying to push towards marriage equality, is that um, something that other people have done? Like, you know, people who wanted to curb tobacco use, did they think, well, we may not get as far in tobacco growing states, you know, like in the southeast. So maybe we'll focus a little bit less on those. I mean, have you seen that done in other places? Absolutely. All of the successful movements that we studied adopted a 10, 10, 10, 20 equals okay. 50 approach, okay. even if they didn't call it that. I mean, that that's a, a rubric that we borrowed from the playbook of the 
winning marriage equality movement uh, documents. Even if not to the letter, the spirit is, whether it's gun rights or drunk driving reduction, uh, certainly tobacco control, you saw this movement. Like if you think about the gun rights movement, it's always been a state and local strategy. Have you ever wondered why you've never seen a big gun rights movement on Capitol Hill? I haven't, but yeah, I know what you mean. There's no, like, march on the Capitol. There's no march on the Capitol. Okay, okay. So they know that that's not how change happens. Change happens by marching and focusing your firepower on state capitals Mm -hmm. and at city, municipal levels. And that's where they focus their resources. And, in fact, for a very long time, really tried to stay away from any federal or Supreme Court ruling Mm -hmm. because there was nervousness among NRA leaders that— it would not be supportive of Second Amendment uh, rights. So let's talk about social movements that you think, as you kind of look forward here, might be strengthening in their power. Uh, we talked a little bit about gun control advocates in that vein. Is there anything else that strikes you? Well, I think about a lot about the Me Too movement with all that's going on in the headlines mm-hmm. these days. And certainly from a grassroots perspective, as you have more women coming out and just exposing themselves to the scrutiny and the hatred that they often are up against on the side of transparency and saying this happened too. And and there's a lot of strength in numbers. You know, what's interesting about Me Too is that the challenges around gender equality, sexual harassment, sexual assault, there isn't a policy or a law that can necessarily change things at this point. If you think about it, in most workplaces, except for a few exceptions, you know, sexual harassment, sexual abuse is illegal, right? What you need to do is change social norms. So if you think about one of the successful movements we studied in our book, the anti-drunk driving movement led by MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, you know, there's no policy or law that says you have to have a designated driver. But because MAD both tried to enforce existing laws, they also put forth a campaign around Friends Don't Let Friends Drive Drunk. Mm-hmm. That was actually invented by a group in Canada. But MAD had the chapters and the local presence to be able to make that go viral, you know, decades before we had Internet and things could go instantly viral. And it became the norm that if you're at a party and you see your friends had one too many, you don't let them drive drunk. You take their keys. Designate a driver. That's a social norm shift, a behavior change. So when you look at Me Too, I think a lot of this is incumbent upon men in positions of power who are the ones that can enforce their peers to not engage in abusive um, types of behaviors. Mm-hmm. With that movement, thinking about what, how do we actually shift the norm becomes apparent. And then there's you know, other things you can do as well, like continuing to advocate and push for non-discrimination laws, having more women in positions of leadership and power is the number one way to prevent these types of things from happening as well. And you still have vast inequalities at that level. Leslie Crutchfield is the executive director at Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative. She's also the author of the book, How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. Leslie, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Kara.
By the way, a while back, we talked to Zainab Tufekshi about how effective modern protests actually are. It's a conversation that challenged some of my assumptions. We'll have a link to it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. One of the divides you see over and over in politics is on the question of how much should the government get involved? How much should they get involved with regulating guns or reproductive options or taking money in taxes? On this list of what the government ought or ought not to get involved in, you've probably never seen the issue of growing rice. And why would you? Well, says author Seamus McGraw, this is no ordinary rice. The story here is that a few years back, there is a a farmer and rancher in uh, West Texas, in arid West Texas, uh, by the name of Williams, uh, Jeff Williams. Williams and his family had the rights to a ton of water in Texas that they could pump out of the aquifer under their land, no matter how dry Texas got. That's what the state Supreme Court had told them. And what it basically comes down to is that an individual landowner has the right to literally pull up as much water as they possibly can, as long as it's used for, quote, more or less beneficial purposes. And that's the end of it. It boils down to whoever has the biggest pump wins. And the Williamses had among the the bigger pumps. McGraw is the author of A Thirsty Land, The Making of an American Water Crisis. He says that what Jeff Williams could not do by law was ship the water to other people who needed it. Even when drought began to plague Texas in 2010, and even when that drought was forcing some farmers to abandon their crops, Jeff Williams thought the situation was curious, to say the least. He reads in the newspaper that, well, you know what, 40,000 acres of rice are being let go. Well, I'm a, I'm a farmer. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to raise rice in the desert. Now, to be fair, it was only a small plot. It was only a few acres. It was a test plot. It was more to make a point than it was to actually make a profit. The point was that despite the fact that rice is generally grown in places like Southeast Asia, where monsoons batter the landscape with rain, the Williamses could grow rice in the desert in the middle of a drought. And that, McGraw argues, tells us a lot about where we're headed with water, not just in Texas, but in the country as a whole. You have the abdication of the federal to the state, the abdication of the state to the local, and ultimately the abdication of the local to the individual. And that becomes, I think, a a powerful challenge. And how Texas responds to this challenge is instructive for how the rest of us are going to respond to the challenges we're facing. What we're facing is a nation increasingly plagued by both lack of water, droughts, forest fires, and too much water, much of it unsafe or contaminated. Up till now, water has been a classic government versus the individual struggle in America. Politics by another name. But it can't stay that way. McGraw says when we're struggling to find enough water for people in lots of American cities, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Phoenix, something's got to give. And Texas, for him, most clearly encapsulates that lesson. It's not an accident that for much of the Southwest, for example, when they first became part of the United States, they were very sparsely populated. Mm -hmm. They were very sparsely populated 
because they could support very sparse populations. And technology has changed this. I mean, it's hard to imagine a phoenix before air conditioning, for example. I mean, the phoenix of today. There could be no phoenix before before air conditioning. There could be no El Paso. There could be no there could be no San Antonio mm-hmm. today were it not for the technological advancements that have taken place and particularly took place in the post-war era. So so the implication is here that we've put too many people um, or that they've put themselves in the Las Vegases and the Phoenixes and the El Pasos, certainly given the amount of water that we have in those places. And I'll, I'll just say on behalf of those people, like, what? I mean, these are major areas of economic importance and cultural importance. Are you saying in 30 years they're going to turn on the tap and water's not going to come out? No, here, here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, you know, you're going to turn on the tap and, 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 no, and nothing comes out but sand. Sure, that is certainly one possibility. But I think it's an unlikely possibility. The problem isn't necessarily that there isn't enough water in Texas. It's that there isn't enough water in Texas where the population centers are. This is true elsewhere in the United States. Mm-hmm. We can rise to that challenge, but it's going to require that sort of top-down view. The other thing that it's going to require is the recognition that all water is not created equal. The average American consumes in all forms uh, probably about 135 gallons of water a day. Okay, okay. Somewhere in the vicinity of that. Of that, about 10% actually enters their body. And yet the vast majority of water that Americans touch is treated to drinking water standards. And this is stuff we touch. This isn't like what's used to grow our food in. This is like showers and drinking. Well, it's including all of that. But when you turn around, the, the amount that you actually consume the, actual, the amount that actually enters your body mm-hmm. is about 10% of that. Okay. Now, the reality is most of that water is treated to safe drinking water standards in, in, in many places, unless you're pulling it up out of a well. Um, it need not necessarily be. There are options. There are other places where they're exploring things like purple pipes that turn around and use gray and recycled water and those sorts of things for uses other than potable water. Okay. So the most precious water, I make this point a lot, Kara, is that, you know, we, we don't like to talk about water as a commodity, but it is a commodity as well as a human right, I believe. And the bottom line is it's a, it's a commodity that has a price. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking to Seamus McGraw, author of the book, A Thirsty Land, The Making of an American Water Crisis. We're talking about our current fight over water. So if the, if the uh, national government has sort of abdicated its responsibility to figure out how to redistribute water in a logical way, and state governments often kind of have too, and local governments kind of have too, and now it's just like up to individual people to suck whatever they want out of the ground if they, if they can, good for them. I feel like what you're saying is the only way to motivate people probably is going to be a crisis so big and so painful that people can't do anything but address it. There's a line there's a line that they often use in Texas and I think it's applicable to the rest of the country. The only way anything gets done on water in Texas is if you have two things. One is a drought and the other is a budget surplus. And I think that's true. That seems like a recipe. I mean, maybe it's a recipe for lawmaking, but it all seems like a recipe for disaster. Well, except I I am a firm believer 
in the old Churchillian adage uh, that Americans will do the right thing after they've, after they've exhausted every other option. I'm a firm believer in that. And right. I do believe that, yeah, that it, it probably will take a crisis. And I think that crisis is looming. Um, but I do ultimately believe that in times of crisis— it's sometimes hard to differentiate between altruism and enlightened self-interest. And I think we may be moving to a point where that becomes more likely. Hmm. Um, and I think there are tools at our disposal. So you've obviously spent a year studying how we deal with water. Um, when you think about people filling swimming pools and, you know, water skiing on man-made lakes, which happens in Texas, uh, happens elsewhere too, do you think people feel like we're in a crisis? No, people don't feel like they like they're in a crisis. And I, they, here's why we don't feel like we're in a crisis. It's I think it's because we're removed from it. We don't see necessarily the drop in river levels. We certainly do not see the decline in the Ogallala Aquifer. People above it know it's happening, mm -hmm. but it's not something you see. The vast majority of Texans live in cities. They live in suburbs. They have very little interaction with the natural world. Which is true of most people in America. And like true lots of people of, in America. It's true right? across the United States. Right. And increasingly, it's true across the world. Mm -hmm. We have increasingly less contact with sort of that first hand. Right, right. And it, so it becomes very, very easy to lose track of how deeply tied to it we are. And so I do think that to a great extent, people are insulated from it until the problem becomes critical enough that they're not. If you live in a place like New York or Chicago or... Seattle, and you're like, it rains all the time. We have plenty of lakes. We the things are plenty green here. It's fine. Um, this is all interesting to folks in Texas, maybe, or Los Angeles, maybe, or Phoenix, maybe. But why should I care? Do you ever did an answer for those people? A couple of well, there are a couple of reasons. Okay, one, what happens in Texas does affect you. We're, none of us are in this alone. Hmm. That giant game of whack-a-mole that gets played across Texas gets played to a very great extent across the rest of the United States. There's one other point I'd like to add to that. We tend when uh, – it, 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 it may be by, by, by dint of the title, but we tend to talk only about the dry times when we talk about when – I, when I have discussions about these books. That's only part of the issue. As we've seen – as we're seeing repeatedly, not only are the dry places getting drier, but the wet places are getting wetter. Right. And they're getting wetter in a way that it becomes difficult or impossible to manage those kinds of flows of water. When you turn around, you're sitting in New York and you say, well, you know what, I've gotten three and a half inches of rain in the last two days. That's three and a half inches of rain washing all kinds of stuff into those pristine reservoirs of yours up in the Catskills. That's three and a half inches of rain that's turning around and putting pressure on your treatment systems. That's three and a half inches of rain that may be threatening the integrity 
of some of your water systems. It's not just water. It's it's good water. It's clean water. It's water that doesn't have a bunch of chemicals exactly. in it. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, again, it, it, it's a mistake to – kind of the mistake that we're making even in having this discussion this way, why should I care if I'm in New York, is exactly the fundamental problem that we're facing in all the water issues, which is this idea that we tend to think of water as my water. It's not my water. It's part of a system that spans regions, nations, the globe. Seamus McGraw is the author of the book, A Thirsty Land, The Making of an American Water Crisis. Seamus, thank you. My pleasure. On our website, we'll have more about a city that faced the prospect of no water at all, Cape Town, South Africa. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Asil Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.